Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Well, it's another great Sunday because I get the joy of being fed again. God gives many gifts to his church. One of those gifts is pastors, elders, shepherds. So I'm so thankful that God has given us the gift of Eric Bierkus, his life, his heart, to uh, help uh, shepherd this congregation, to lead and feed and teach and preach this morning. I think we got this idea. So Eric's going to preach through the book of 2 Peter in three Sundays, starting this Sunday. And I think we got this idea from Carl Peterson, Peterson, maybe. He suggested, oh, don't just preach one Sunday, preach three. That way, him and I can now commiserate on what it's like to go week after week after week and preach. But I know that Eric has uh, been preparing not only what he's going to say, but preparing his heart And his desire is to feed you well from God's word. And so would we have ears that are ready to hear uh, not just what Eric would say to us, but what God would say to us through his word and through Eric this morning. Eric, would you come feed us? Good morning, church. It's good to be in front of you this morning. As you uh, open your Bibles to Second Peter, um, it's been a morning of questions, I guess. <laughs> I have a question that I've been thinking about um, in preparation for this uh, particular morning, but uh, the question is, are you hungry this morning? Uh, do we know what that's like to wake up in the morning and just be famished and you just cannot wait until you get some food in your belly? Do you know what it's like to fast for a prolonged period of time and just every moment that you're awake, you're thinking about your next meal. You want to eat. It just consumes you. Or if you've been out on a, it seems far away for us, but on a hot, sunny day, you've been working in the yard, and the thing that you want most is that cold, refreshing glass of water. Do you know what that's like in your bodies? And if that's true for our bodies, how much more true is it for our souls? I was reading in Psalm 63, just a few verses there. In verse 1, the psalmist writes, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So can you identify with that even this morning, this thirsting that we have in our souls for God's word, for God himself? Or are we like uh, children or even some adults who have been snacking throughout the day and throughout the week? 
trying to satisfy ourselves. And it comes time for dinner, and we're not hungry. We don't want what mom and probably mom has cooked for us. Um, we can do that too. We can be um, taken with the world's um, invitations and what we think the world is giving to us to satisfy us. And when it comes time for God's word, we're kind of like, mm, take it or leave it. I've already been fed. And we don't have an appetite for it. If that's us this morning, and I think it's us in given times throughout the week and throughout our lives, let's repent of that right now. Because what we have feasted on, if it's the world's goods, will not satisfy us, has not satisfied us. God's word, what we're about to go through this morning, is what satisfies our souls. If we read further along in Psalm 63, verse 5, that's what it says here. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So may God's word this morning for, be for us fat and rich food, that thing which satisfies us, that thing which we can take from here. We're full on it. It carries us the rest of this day um, and day by day. With that said, if you would, please stand with me as we read Second Peter Verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to, at any time to recall these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, uh, your word is sufficient for us this morning. I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word knowing that we can never plumb its depths in the time that we have this morning. So I pray that what I would say to you
to your people would first of all be true. Secondly, that I would speak with clarity. And thirdly, by your grace, that I would speak with conviction that your church may be built up to your glory and our joy in you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. If you have your outline in front of you, we'll be going through that, Lord willing, hopefully. Um, we see that this letter, Second Peter, was written by uh, Simeon Peter, also known as Simon Peter. And it might be helpful for us, even before we jump into the, the meat of the text, to remember uh, two defining times in the Apostle Peter's life. This one who calls himself a servant or slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. The first event is one that we may be thinking of whenever we think of Simon Peter, which is his three-time denial of Jesus Christ. He is the one who swore to Jesus that he would never fall away from Christ, that he would never deny Christ, even if it meant that he would die with him. He was the one who had the courage to take a sword, to cut off an ear of a servant of the Jewish high priest in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then, just a few hours later, deny even knowing Jesus to another servant of that same high priest. For many of us, this is what we know about Peter, his failure. But I would argue that Peter's defining moment was not that failure, but the grace of God through Jesus Christ extended to him not long after this. Is that true of us, that our sin does not define us, but God's grace to us is what defines us. And Peter is a picture of that for us. After Jesus' death and resurrection on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, where he was first called to follow Christ, after eating a fish breakfast, Jesus restored Peter and commissioned him to shepherd his people. Are you familiar with this passage from John 21? Jesus says to Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? Simon replies, yes, Lord. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, tend my sheep. Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep, follow me. And isn't that what we see that Peter did? We read in 1 Peter 5, 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So what do shepherds do? First of all, they know their sheep. They feed and they lead their sheep, and they protect their sheep. In 1 Peter, the focus is largely on shepherding Christ's sheep through the persecution outside of the church. In 2 Peter, this farewell discourse, as Peter has in view the end of his life, his focus is largely on the false teachers within the church. Peter shepherds his flock through exhortation to godly living, through combating these false teachers, and through encouragement to watch for the Lord's return. This letter looks to what God has done in the past to ground his sheep for what God will have him do in the present as the sheep and he wait the glorious future that God has prepared for them. And if the Lord wills, that's what we'll follow these next few weeks. So how does Peter begin feeding his sheep? This is the first point in your outline. Peter feeds his sheep by declaring that God has given Christians all that is needed for godly living. 
God has given Christians all that is needed for godly living. To whom this letter was written was a matter of some debate. Some scholars hold that these are the same recipients as 1 Peter, those elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, uh, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Other scholars disagree. What we do know, without a doubt, is the recipients of this letter are the ones that Peter knows personally. He knows they are established in the truth. And this is the second letter, in fact, that he's writing to them. He refers to them as brothers, beloved. These are terms of relationship and affection. Further, Peter refers to them as those who have obtained a faith of equal standing as the apostles. And the faith here is not the faith as a body of truth or knowledge, but the subjective experience of all believers to have assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And this faith, this gift of the recipients of this letter, is no second-class faith. But in it and through it are all the privileges and rights as Peter and the other apostles have, the same access to God and his promises. And we see that the foundation of this faith is the righteousness of their God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see that the foundation of grace and peace being multiplied to them is through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. So in short, as we begin, we see that absolute necessity and centrality of Jesus Christ and the true knowledge of him. Further, as you read in verse 3, we see that this is no knowledge apart from the work of God. For is God's divine power working through this knowledge that grants followers of Christ all things that pertain to life and godliness? Now the question is, what does Peter mean when he writes life and godliness? I think what he means here is eternal life. This is an already and not yet eternal life. Christians, if you are a Christian, have eternal life now. It's a present reality. You can read in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And yet, we are waiting for the fullness of that eternal life in the coming kingdom. Even as we talked about earlier today. And we see that life This eternal life and godliness are connected. For one does not exist without the other. You cannot have godliness without having eternal life already. And as we'll see, if you don't desire godliness increasingly, now you should have no expectation for eternal life in the future. In many ways, the focus of 2 Peter is eschatological. I just barely got that out, which is a big word, right? Um, that's the study of the last things. It has a view towards the end times when Christ returns. And what Peter is holding out to us here is that how should you live in light of eternity, the return of Christ in his coming kingdom? And it has all to do with godliness now for godliness then. This life further, we see Peter writes, is the escape of the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Let's not miss this. Christian, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were by nature a child of wrath. But now you have been raised to new life in Christ. You have been called to God's own glory and excellence. That is, God's splendor and his goodness. The God of the universe has effectually called you to himself. In 1 Peter 2.9 we read, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
More than that, you now possess God's precious and great promises through which we become partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? Partakers in the divine nature means that we become increasingly like God himself. We're conformed to the image of Christ. We do not become God, or as some other world religions hold, we become gods, but we increasingly image God to his creation. That's the present reality, and we know that these promises, I think, are in the gospel, but they point forward to the return of Christ. We read in 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So the promises that we are waiting for are this future glory when sin is no more. We see it and taste it now, and we have promises that, that will be our future to come. This morning, do you feel that there is something more that you need? Do you feel that pressing in on you as you perhaps read the news and you see what's going on in our world and our nation and you begin to worry? As a parent, I worry for my children. Think, what kind of world will they inherit? Perhaps your worry isn't so big and far off. Perhaps it's nearer. And you think, as you think about work, relationships that you have that are difficult and that are trying, and you think, if I just had something more, if I just had, and you fill in the blank, if I just had this, I would be okay. I would be able to live okay. More money in the bank account, this person not in my life, a job that pays more, whatever it is, you want to fill in that blank with something. Perhaps it's besetting sin in your life. And you can't get over that sin. You just keep coming up against it. And you think, if, I just, if something were different. Christian, beloved in Christ, you have grace and peace. You have all you need for eternal life. You have all you need to reach the end believing you have all you need for godliness, to act in accord with God's character, to not succumb to sin. For even now you are partaking of the divine nature, becoming more like Jesus in character, so that you can continue to escape the corruption of this world and even of your own sinful desires. You have all of this because of what God has done. God's power, the power that guards you even now, has gifted you through a saving knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Praise God for what he has done in your life if you are in Christ. And because we are new creations in Christ, because God has done this, now we, in fact, can live differently. We should live differently. And this is the second point. Therefore, Christians make every effort to grow in godly living. Therefore, Christians make every effort to grow or bound in godly living. I couldn't go back, I went back and forth on that one. Abound is a little more descriptive. Isn't that what Paul writes next, beginning in verse 5? For this very reason, because you have been given all you need in the knowledge of Christ, because your character is now different, 
make every effort to apply the knowledge to be effective and to bear fruit. We have just seen the indicatives, what God has done, this true statement of who you are if you are in Christ. And now we learn the imperatives, what we are to do in light of what God has done in us. And we dare not turn those two around. God's grace in your life, if you have been graced, does not lead to passivity or complacency. God's grace leads to action and to resolve. Do you remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.10? We read there, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Let's listen to Peter's language here. We're to be diligent to confirm our calling and election. Peter makes every effort to remind the reader of these qualities. We are to be diligent to be found in Christ. Christians are not to be carried along with the current of this world. There is no coasting in the Christian life. Day by day, moment by moment, we exert ourselves to swim upstream from where this world would take us. Is that what the knowledge of Christ does in your life? Are we like the Pharisees who use knowledge, the knowledge of God, to make themselves appear to be righteous and good before others? After all, knowledge can puff up. Are we hearers of the word but not doers? Do we merely love in word and talk but not in deed or truth? Are we like the false teachers later, described later in this letter, who claim to know God but deny him by their sinful lives? Christians are to participate with God in our sanctification. We're to make every effort to do so. These qualities that we see in the following verses are found upon faith from verse 1, and they build toward an apex, which is love, that chief characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit, that virtue without which we are noisy gongs or clanging cymbals. These qualities are not stages or levels of the Christian life that we advance to and then we're good on the previous one, but these are qualities that we continually lavish one upon the other as the Christian continually grows in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. So we begin here talking about faith. Faith is the root of the Christian life, but it's more than a confession of the lips. What do we read in James 2.14? What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? No. True faith is fruitful. As James writes, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we take that faith as the foundation, and we supplement our faith. We lavish upon that virtue or goodness. What is this virtue or goodness that Peter talks about? It's the mastery or achievement in moral excellence. The moral excellence, in fact, of Jesus Christ himself. To that goodness, we had knowledge. This is a good reminder that a Christian never arrives at a complete knowledge, but is ever-growing and ever-increasing in the knowledge of Christ, who has called us to his own glory and excellence. While we may have sufficient knowledge now, we can never fully plumb the depths of God's um, word and what he has for us. We supplement that knowledge with self-control, 
There were some in Peter's day and in ours who claimed that knowledge frees people from having self-control. That, in fact, now we're able to do all that our hearts desire. Some were perhaps even twisting Paul's writings as he talked about the freedom he has in Christ to support this view. And we'll see that in the Lord willing next week. But Christians know that we are to have self-control. In fact, that's the fruit of the Spirit. And we add to this self-control steadfastness. That is, we are patient, we persevere, we endure. This is necessary as we wait the return of the Lord. The false teachers that we'll learn about, they deny his return and use that as a justification to live without self-control. But we are those who are seeing time through God's eyes. We add to our steadfastness godliness. We are aware of God's dominion in every area of our lives. We are devoted to him. We revere him. He governs our attitudes in all situations of our lives. We want to live a life that is like God. We read next that we supplement this godliness with brotherly affection. We are not cold or indifferent toward others in the household of faith, those who are part of the body of Christ. While we are, yes, called to love everyone, even our enemies, is there not a special affection toward those whom for Christ died. If Jesus poured out his life, shed his blood on the cross and rose again for your brother and sister in Christ, who are we to be indifferent to them? Even now, look at the men and women in this room. See them as those for whom Christ died. That is how much he loves them. Do you love them in that way? Do you call them beloved? Do you call them brother or sister? Jesus does. In fact, if we don't have affection for each other, is it because we don't have affection for Jesus? What does John write in 1 John 4.20? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this, I confess, is one of those areas for me, it's easy to read this and look around at others and think, are they loving me with this brotherly affection? Isn't that the the heart of sinful man that when, um, most of the time, when attention is not supposed to be paid to us, we want attention paid to us. Look at me. Look what I've done. I want credit for things I have not done. Give me credit for that. Give me the glory for that. And yet when it comes time to a verse like this, which says to look at yourself, we want to look at others. But this morning, let's look at ourselves. Are we looking at our brothers and sisters in Christ with this affection? Are we indifferent to them? Do we really not care what happens to them? Are we not forgiving? Are we impatient with them? Have you ever seen a father or a mother with his child and it's like that father doesn't care about his child, just couldn't even be there, just a nuisance? And what a sad sight that is. Does it break your heart? Or to have two siblings who are at war with each other, who don't even talk to each other. May it not be so in the church of Christ. 
You read in 1 Peter 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The Christian family, the church, is unlike any other family in this world. We are blood-bought people of Jesus Christ. We've been born again of the Holy Spirit. Let's not miss out on this. Lastly, we see we supplement this brotherly affection with love. Love is that self-denying, self-sacrificing action for the good, the ultimate good, I would say, of others. Our love has its source in God and reaches out to us, uh, out from us to the world. Our Christ-like love is a distinctive characteristic in this world. This world defines and redefines love on its own terms. So Christian love is unlike anything that this world could ever produce or imitate. That's what we read in 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. So we would not love if he did not first love us, if we did not know that love. So the love that we give is distinctive. Peter writes, these qualities, all of these eight qualities that we've talked about, to be yours and increasing, to be abounding. We're to have them to some extent, or we have them to some extent, but we're to make every effort to see them increase in our lives. We do not arrive on this side of eternity. Are we growing Christians? It's essential that we are growing, as we will see here. In point three, we see that Christian fruitfulness is essential for entrance into the eternal kingdom. Christian fruitfulness is essential for entrance into the eternal kingdom. And I don't think I'm overselling that. I'm trying not to oversell it. I think I'll, I'll hope to point out to Scripture where that comes from. We read in verses 8 through 11, that these qualities keep us from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in our knowledge. And the question is, can someone who has a true knowledge of Christ, as described in verses 2 and 3, be unfruitful? And there are, I think, two dangers here. The first is that uh, what have some have called the works righteousness theme of Second Peter, which seems to hold out that one must work for and keep a right standing before God by these works we're doing, by adding on to what God has done. This is, in fact, the danger we've seen in Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. But I don't think that's what the, the danger we have in focus here. This danger is that since we can rightly affirm that we are saved by grace, or by faith through grace, and our standing before God is based on Christ's righteousness, that how we live doesn't make a difference. Christ has done it all. We may think that while it's good to have fruit in our lives, it's not necessary. It really makes no difference how we live. But that line of thinking is dangerous and it has eternal consequences. First, we see that the people who are unfruitful and ineffective are those who lack these qualities, these virtues. These people are described in verse 9 as those who are so nearsighted that they are blind. They have forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. What does Peter have in mind here? I think he's multiplying terms for effect. These people are those who have forgotten that they had been cleansed in some definition of cleanse from their former sins. They are blind. They, can no, uh, they cannot see any longer who they were. They are nearsighted insofar as they see only what is near and present. 
not what happened far in the past, nor do they see what's going to happen in the future. Their eyes are shut to the truth. We'll see in chapter 3 that there's a similar picture is used uh, to describe the so-called scoffers who deliberately overlook facts they know to justify the sinful lives that they want to live today. But in verse 10, we read a more positive statement of those who practice these qualities. They will never fall. We read in verse 10, we we are to be diligent to make our calling and election short. This is the evidence of what God has done. Conversely, if we are not diligent to practice these qualities, we will not have the assurance of our calling and election. We may fall. Which maybe doesn't sound so bad. Well, you fall, you get back up, right? I think the idea of this falling isn't merely stumbling or sinning, but rather falling away from God. That is to abandon God. That is to apostatize. If we look at the immediate context, I think that's what it tells us. That's what the contrast here. We have those who are entering the eternal kingdom and those who fall. So how are we to describe those who are ineffective and unfruitful in their knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? These are those who are blind. These are those who have forgotten they were cleansed from their former sins. These are ones who will not enter into the eternal kingdom. We find a similar juxtaposition of these terms in Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. There's that contrast again between stumbling and glory. If we go outside of this epistle to the Gospel of John, as we read earlier, what do we read there in verse 2? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. In verse 5, 6, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, that is, does not bear fruit, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. What is that a picture of? By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If you want to write this down for later on, Matthew 7.15 also has a picture of what it looks like for those who are not bearing fruit. It's the parable of the four soils. Interestingly, right after that, in Matthew 17, is the discussion Jesus has of those who will say, Lord, Lord, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So it's not this confession of the mouth that makes us Christ. It's obedience to Christ. It's this bearing of fruit. So we see here that being fruitful, bearing fruit, is the means by which God displays those who are his for his glory. That display of fruit is decisive. On the one hand, those who do not bear fruit are those who are taken away and thrown into the fire. On the other hand, those who bear fruit are the ones who are lavishly provided an entrance into God's kingdom. And how do we bear fruit? How are we effective in our knowledge of Jesus? We abide in Jesus, and he abides in us. His grace is at work in us, so that we make every effort to grow in these qualities, faith, virtue, excellence, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Be encouraged this morning, Christian. This growth, is every effort on your part, is not burdensome and drudgery. This is the God-ordained means to richly provide for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not barely escaping through flames 
or a reluctance on the part of God to begrudgingly allow you to enter into eternal life, these spiritual qualities, the growth in these spiritual qualities, your every effort to diligently uh, confirm your calling and election, these are the means that God is using so that you will escape the corruption that is in this world, to never fall, to be provided entrance into his eternal kingdom. The future of the Christian is, a, is glorious as evidenced by the pursuit of holiness today. What did Paul write? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. Lastly, we read in verses 12 through 15 that it is not enough to know these things. Point four, Christians make every effort to recall these things. And here we see the heart of a shepherd for his sheep. Peter here has fed his sheep with the nourishment of the word of God. He said, God's divine power has granted all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He has led his sheep through the corruption of this world into the entrance of the eternal kingdom of God. He knows his sheep. He knows that although they are established in the truth, they are prone to forget, prone to wander. So now he makes every effort to remind them of the truth in which they have been established. It's in this reminding that he is protecting the sheep. The qualities that they know and the truth in which they have been established will not be enough unless they are able to at any time recall these things. Not only are they prone to forget, but they will be led astray. They will be deceived, as we'll see in the coming verses. And the danger of this deception, this false teaching, comes from within the church. So they need to remember the apostolic teaching so they might live rightly to the end. Is this not a picture of Christ himself, the good shepherd? How he leads us. So how do we, as the body of Christ, respond to this? Well, we follow Paul, uh, Peter's example. How do we follow Peter's example here? We remind one another of these things. We can read in Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, the ha as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you, say, as you see the day drawing near. I wrote on your notes there, Christians, Christians. You can see that repeated in all four of those. Because it's true, those are, are, these are things true of Christians. But if you are in Christ, you can take that word Christian and cross it out and say it's true of you. If we're a part of the church as we are, we can say that's true of us. We can see ourselves as those individually saved by Christ and yet as part of a people of God. Right? God has not saved us apart from a people. We are part of the church 
the body of Christ. So church, you know these qualities. You are established in the truth that you have. Be stirred up to bear much fruit in your knowledge of Jesus Christ as you are reminded of these things. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you, God, as the one who has given us all that we have needed, all that we do need. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been given to us because of and through Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that you in Christ are our shepherd and that we shall have no want because you lead us in green pastures. You lead us beside still waters. You, in fact, restore our soul. You lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake. I pray, God, that we remind ourselves that even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we should fear no evil, for you are with us. Your rod and your strength, they comfort us. And in fact, you prepare for us a table before us in the presence of our enemies. May it be said of us that you have anointed our head with oil, that our cup overflows, and that surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life, and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.